And uh, if you have your Bibles, please be turned to the book of 1 John. We're in 1 John chapter 2, and uh, we're going through this sermon series in 1 John. We've kind of slowed it down a little bit in uh, the second chapter, verses 15 through 17. So uh, today we'll conclude our time in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2 and verse uh, 15 through 17. So uh, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us this morning. We had a great time last night at uh, Faith and Family uh, Night at the K. Uh, several people uh, came to Faith in Christ. I appreciate everybody that participated in that. That was a good time. And uh, also, we uh, this Friday, Alicia Hancock graduated from Lily's house, so that was pretty awesome. So a lot of neat things going on. Yeah. Is she, is she here? Yeah. I don't think she's here, but uh, praise the Lord. It's a good deal. So uh, praise the Lord. Yeah, a lot of neat things going on. I hope you're encouraged. Isn't this weather wonderful? It was really good. And so um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to review where we were in 1 John chapter 2. If you're joining us and you're just picking up on this series, we've been really contrasting um, our relationship, of course, with Christ initially in the first uh, seven verses, the Word of God, our relationship with one another in, in really verses 7 through uh, 14. And now um, we're looking at the relationship that we have with the world. So We've been, I've called this, it's kind of like a mini-series inside our To Know God is to Love God series called um, Bringing Relationships to Light. And our first, uh, our first point of study that we saw in verse 15 of chapter 2 was that we need to receive God's instruction, right? Uh, the Apostle John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, love not the world is a command, not a suggestion. We talked about that, how we're, uh, we're not to love the things that are in the world. And then we concluded with really a challenge on who do we love. And that's been a few weeks ago. And then last week we saw that our need to look to the Scripture for definitions. And we noted the way the, the distinctions in the way the word world is used in the Bible so that we could clearly understand that there's a world system, it's an evil system, that is actively opposing God. That's everything I said in a nutshell. We took some time to really get in and look at how uh, God defined that and how that was a how that was a part of what John was saying with, in regard to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and how that came from Adam and Eve. How uh, there's we looked at three areas, of course, that Satan tempts us in in regard to the lust of the, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and uh, and the fact that the world will tempt you in all of those areas, because you have an adversary, and because the world hates you, and because we have an old nature, and because the whole world lies in wickedness. And so that's where we left off last time. So about six months before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, <clears throat> all, the religious, um, all, the, all the religious Jews of that, of that time around Galilee uh, were listening to Jesus preach uh, the Pharisees as well, the political or the uh, religious leaders were listening to Jesus preach, and the people decided that they wanted him to be their king. Uh, and this is about six months before he died, and and he so the call of many of the Jews was that you know what this guy's doing miracles, he could deliver us from Rome. We want our Messiah King, right? They were happy to receive Jesus as their political leader, uh, and Jesus actually said, "No, we're not doing that." Uh, and he in, intentionally um, would not receive uh, their, op, their, their invitation to be their king. So Jesus then intensely, from that time forward, begins to train his disciples in predominantly Gentile areas. And he fed the 5,000 stories that you guys might know. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He uh, concluded his ministry in Galilee. 
which, by the way, ended up being with rejection. Uh, they didn't really like what he had to say about being Messiah, and so they ended up rejecting him because uh, at length. Uh, and then he withdrew to the north of Galilee uh, with his disciples. And it's there that he, he rests from his Galilean ministry for about 24 hours or 48 hours. I'm not sure exactly how long it was. And, and then he says this in Mark chapter 8. And uh, Mark chapter 8, as he's talking to his disciples, he says in verse 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, so this wasn't just his disciples, he said unto them, Whosoever, whosoever will come after me... <clears throat> Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so, um, so that's kind of a, excuse me here, I'm distracted with technology. So that's, that's an incredible thing. As Jesus was nearing his death, with six months left, he was not only revealing that he would give his life on the cross, but he called his disciples to do the same. He, he's at the place where he's, he's saying, now, um, I need you guys to, to follow me, and that means you're, you're going to need to lay your life down as well. And so they didn't have to be crucified, of course, as he was, but they would need to be willing to lose their life to inherit the glory that God had set aside for them. And so as we conclude our, our last message on bringing relationships to light, we're reminded that the only relationship that will really satisfy us for all eternity is our relationship with the Lord. You know, a love for the world and the things that are in the world is going to leave us nothing of eternal value. And so you already know this if you've lived very long, right? It doesn't take you long in this life to figure out that when you really get what you want, it's never enough, right? It just never satisfies. And what was shiny yesterday is old tomorrow, right? And it just, it's like moth and rust, right? It doth corrupt, and, uh, and the things that you possess, the thieves can break through and steal, and those things just do not satisfy the soul. And so you already know that. If you've lived very long, um, you, you understand. Even the new achievements you make, the new house you bought, the new car that you owned, the new job that you had, uh, the new clothes, uh, the new relationships, right? If those that move from relationship to relationship, uh, all of those things in, that you find in this world, they simply leave you empty um, compared to who Christ is and what he's designed for us. If God is not involved in all of those things, if he's not first, well, then all that other stuff just ends up making us, it messes up our relationships with other people, and, and ultimately, even ourselves, we're conflicted because we're not satisfied. Because just like the old saying goes, there is a God-shaped hole in all of us. And then once you get saved, it's important to furnish this vessel, this house, with the things that please God, gold, silver, precious stones, not wood, hay, and stubble. And, and so uh, John has already told us the what. Okay, so in verses 15 through 16, he gave us the what? He tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's a pretty easy command to understand. We've already covered that. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? So a love for this world does, it does affect our love for the Father. So he can't, you know, it, it's a competition for the heart. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So he even brings it down really simply, as we've already covered before into those three things, lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, so that's the what. 
But then in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 17, which is what we're focusing on this morning, he gives us the why. The why is really found in verse 17. And the world passes away. This is why you don't want to invest in the things of this world, because it's going to perish. And the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see, John doesn't just tell us to love the, the word of God, although he does in 1 John 2, 5, and to love our brothers, though he does in 1 John 2, 10, um, and to not, not love the world, which he does that also in 1 John 2, 5. He does tell us all those things, but that's not all that he's telling us. He tells us why in verse 17. Not only will we lose everything that is truly valuable if we love the world, but we end up missing everything that is truly eternal if we love the world. And so let's just look at the text one more time. We're going to pray, and then we're going to ask God to open up our eyes and behold wondrous things from his word. It says, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, verse 17, but he that doeth the will of God, what's it say? Abideth forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. It's a simple verse, but it's so powerful. and has so much meaning, and it's so practical. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning you would quicken your word, quicken our opportunity to be here together, bring it to life, help us to go out of here today uh, changed, Lord, uh, uh, improved, cleansed, uh, ready to serve you, Lord. I pray, God, that you would captivate our hearts with the word of God, and the spirit of God would teach us all things whatsoever you said to us. I thank you, and I praise you, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is our third point of study in this, in this particular series, and it's called, uh, this point this morning is how we approach God, God's word determines our destination. And, uh, and I'm going to, it's going to take me a while to get to the conclusion, so bear with me. But I'm going to start with a very, simple, uh, a very simple thing that is very easy to see in the text, and that is that we need to count the cost of choosing to love the world. We need to count the cost of, uh, of choosing to love the world. In 1 John 2.15 and verse 17, uh, there is a doctrinal application here that can be a little confusing if you're reading, because in verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is that, well, is that saying you can lose your salvation? Verse 17 also says, in the, at the end of verse 17, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So if you don't do the will of God, do you not abide forever? So these are questions that, that, that someone might have, and they're good questions, and they're not wrong to have, um, because it's, it's good to understand what God is doing in this passage. Actually, in all the general epistles, these are passages that have a doctrinal application in the coming tribulation period. Verse John 2.15 and and verse 17, really all of 1 John, all the general epistles, have a, a, an application, a doctrinal uh, application in the coming tribulation. Jesus taught his disciples and uh, us about the means of salvation in the coming tribulation. So I just want to clarify this for anyone that might be confused studying through 1 John. In Matthew 24, 13, it's clear that only those who endure to the end shall be saved. And Jesus is giving that instruction um, to his disciples. He's, he's clearly talking about what's called the gospel of the kingdom, which is directly dealing with the gospel presented in the period of Daniel's 70th week. He's talking about what's going to transpire before he comes at his second coming. Now, he hasn't gone to the cross in Matthew 24. He also hasn't been rejected of Israel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts. So as far as, as everyone else could see, if they could see what he was saying, that was perfectly appropriate because, you know, the church age was still a mystery and was hidden. The apostle Paul hadn't gotten saved and that mystery was not revealed. So he was talking about this earthly kingdom that the Jews did want. They wanted Jesus as their king. Uh, they just didn't want him as their Lord, and they could not receive him as their God. So they did not have an opportunity to fulfill that. 
But he was talking about what would happen before his coming in this gospel of the kingdom, which is directly dealing with the gospel presented in the period of Daniel's 70th week, or what's often called the tribulation period. It's also called the gospel of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 4.17. And this gospel will be preached by the 144,000 Jewish male virgins in the coming tribulation period. So for some of you, you're like, that just went over my head, Brian. And that's cool. I throw that out for those of you that, that uh, study those things, and it's no big deal if you miss it. We'll, we're going to come around to some more practical things in just a moment. But it's not referring to the gospel of grace. And that's what I want to make that clear. Um, uh, the gospel of grace that we preach, right, which we can find that in Acts 20, 24. Uh, many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace we're saved through faith, right, not of works, lest any man should boast. boast. So the gospel we preach is also called the gospel of Christ in Galatians 1, 7, the gospel of God in Romans 1, 1. And Paul refers to it as my gospel in Romans 2.16, Romans 16.25, 2 Timothy 2.8. So that is the gospel we preach here at HBF, which is the grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. You hear that every week. Every time I get a chance to preach, that's what we're preaching. That's what we heard last night at the ball game, and uh, that's why people responded to that beautiful message of grace. And so um, just a shout out to those that are Reformed theologians that are listening in. Um, you know, you're going to tell me First John two fifteen through 17 is dealing with the perseverance of the saints, uh, which is not true either. And it totally undermines uh, your own position of unconditional election. So if your election is only voted on by God and grace is only given through sovereign election, then why do you have to persevere? Uh, that's a question that you can't answer because it's not answerable. If God had sovereignty, it had, so- had sovereignly saved you, why would you need to persevere to maintain anything? Uh, they don't know that answer either. So don't get caught up in that, you know, because that's something that Calvin came up with in fifteen, in the 1500s, and then he really stole it from Aurelius Augustine, uh, who was alive from 345 to 430 uh, A.D., who pulled it from Plato, who lived in 423 to 348 B.C. So that's old, that's, that predates Christ, that kind of mindset. So for those of you that are caught up in that. So I've taken care of a lot of study right there. Boom. All the doctrinal questions, boom, 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 they're all laid out there. So John was writing to first century saints who composed the church historically, but God is also in his providence leaving room for John's epistle to be applied to those <clears throat> who will read this in the coming tribulation after hearing uh, the preaching of the 144,000. So it does have a dual application. So I want to set that to rest so we can focus on how we can apply that to our life because Christians in this dispensation, um, we view it in light of what we know is true in our dispensation. So we, we, we see this in light of what we know is true in our dispensation, which is this. We understand that we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose our inheritance. And we've already talked about that, right? We can lose our joy. We can lose our peace. We can lose our patience. Um, you know, we can take those things that are the fruit of the Spirit and all of a sudden turn those things upside down, and it will impact uh, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Bible says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we may not be able to lose, and not maybe, we, we cannot lose our salvation. If you're born again, you can't be unborn. But you can lose uh, your joy. You can lose inheritance. So know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But, but be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But what are you today? You're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So when you call upon the name of the Lord, in Romans it tells us we're justified. 
just as if we've never sinned. Why? Because Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 2, is our propitiation. He's our replacement for sin. So we already covered that at the beginning of the chapter. And so praise God, you are not that. You are now a new creature in Christ, and you'll be judged for what you do with that. What are you going to do with your new life in Christ, your new identity? Right now, everybody's talking about identity. You know, what am I? He, she, it, what, whatever. Hey, what you are is a new creature in Christ. So we do, if you're going to have identity issues, start here at the church, right? We need to identify with Christ. That's the reality of, of the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to be judged for how we handle our new identity. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For other foundation can no man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Right? There'll come a day when it'll be manifest. If we've been playing games, God'll it'll all be revealed. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved. So, as by fire. He's not going to lose his salvation. He's going to lose his inheritance. He's going to burn through it, and there isn't going to be anything there because he's not been investing in the things that are eternal. So know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Right? So uh, God has the right, by the way, to, to, we talk about this at the Lord's Supper, right? He has the right, he retains the right uh, to destroy our temple if need be. If he, he can condemn this house, right? If we want to go too far and uh, take God's grace and turn into lascivious, God can pull the plug anytime he wants. Uh, you can be a vessel. I remember when I was being discipled, one of the best lessons my discipler taught me, he looked me in the eye and said, Brian, you can be a vessel of honor or you can be a vessel of dishonor. How you serve the Lord is up to you. But, you know, he reserves the right. He didn't tell me this, but in essence, he reserves the right to pull the plug. Right? You want to go so far away that, uh, that uh, I mean, God's gracious and kind, but don't test him. So don't tempt him. So if you are born again, you will never lose your salvation because you've been born eternally. It's free. It's a free gift you didn't earn, and Christ is your foundation. However, what you build thereon will be tested with fire to see, uh, <clears throat> see what was eternal in value and what was based in the love of this world right what was the the motive what's the why what's the why behind why why do i preach why do i uh, do whatever i'm doing for the lord why do i love my wife why do i raise my family why do i do what i'm doing is it is it for sinful reasons is it for carnal reasons or is it for god's glory so those are the questions that we got to ask ourselves why do we go to work right why do we do everything that we do whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do we're to do all for the glory of God. But let's be honest, we're not always doing that, right? So we got to, that's why we come to church, right? We got to get ourselves adjusted. We got to get washed in the word. That's why we get up in the morning and we renew our mind daily. We pray because we want to make sure we're investing in the right thing. So the world system has a plan for your destruction. The world system has a plan for your destruction. The book of Psalms opens with an admonition on how to avoid being drawn into loving the world. Now, this is where we get practical, and I want you to hang on and stick with me because the book of Psalms is really educational here. I don't need to comment on it. It's self-explanatory. It opens up and says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You can see a progression there, right? The, the man is blessed 
when he doesn't walk into a certain council, when he doesn't, uh, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners and end up sitting in the seat of the scornful. There's a progression, right? Where he walks, where he stands, and where he sits. When we're seated and at rest, right, we're, we're somewhat comfortable. What it's really talking about is becoming co- comfortable in this world. You know, you, at first you, you walk by it and you're like, okay, listening in, right? Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Next thing you know, you're standing with it and you're identifying with the world. Next thing you know, you're completely comfortable. You're just hanging out. You're lounging with the world, right? It's a progression. And uh, for, in uh, Psalms chapter uh, 1 is very clear about this. And the man that doesn't do that, it says, is going to be like this. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in, the, in his law doth he meditate day and night. A man or a woman who has their mind on the Lord's word is not going to be as a, as, as a prone to uh, walk in the way of sinners, to stand, uh, to stand with, <clears throat> I'm sorry, walk in the way of ungodly counsel, to stand in the way of sinners, or this, to uh, sit in the seat of the scornful, those that actually would, would rail on God. And he shall be like a tree. Conversely, he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither. You notice it doesn't say fruits. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular. And in, in, uh, in his, uh, his, he bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So who knows? Who knows how we're living our life ultimately? Who really knows? God, right? So obviously it's pretty evident with some people that uh, they're, whatever they're investing in is just going to blow away. I mean, they're investing in vanity very clearly. But at the end of the day, it's only God who really knows where our heart's at and what we're truly meditating on. And loving the world draws us into uh, to relationships that are designed to sabotage our, our walk with Christ. And so loving God uh, or loving the world draws us into relationships that are designed to sabotage our walk with Christ. James said this in James 4.4, 4, The adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That means you're at war with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You want to be a friend of the world, then you're going to be an enemy of God. And so this is this is like counterculture to the to the church today. The church has been for the last twenty years since I've been a pastor, the church has been finding so many ways, I say the church, many churches are finding so many ways to be friends with the world that they forsake the gospel. Right? Our mission here isn't to be friends with the world. Our mission here is to be holy and, and true to the Lord and to love people enough to see live in Christ. Right? That's what we need to do. But loving the world, it, it, can, uh, it can lead you into relationships that are uh, going to sabotage your walk with God. Loving the world and the things that are in the world are designed to also defile you. And I put in your notes our garments. Because ultimately when we get in 1 Corinthians 15, there's coming a day, if you're a Christian, where you'll be caught up. Uh, or if you die, you'll be resurrected. Uh, and, and we will get a, a glorious new clothing, right? We're going to be, we're gonna be uh, in, in, uh, in robes of white. It's going to be incredible. And so um, in James 1, the Bible says, uh, Pure religion is undefiled before God, the Father. Uh, <clears throat> and, and the Father is this, To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You know, keep your clothes clean. 
You know, I'm always amazed when I go to India. If you've ever been to India, it is a, uh, all, I'm sorry my friends in India, but it is, it, there's a lot of dirt there. It's a dirty place. And it's, it's filthy. Um, but what's amazing is I, I see many of these Indians, they look like a million bucks. I mean, they can come, I, they can come right out of the side of the road somewhere, come out of the woods, and they come walking out, and their clothes, man, just many of them just crisp and clean and look like a million bucks. I mean, their, their garments are spotless. I'm always impressed by that. I'm like, if I walked where they just walked, I'd come out looking all messed up. I know I would. I'd have dust and dirt all over me. I don't, I don't know how they do it. Sometimes, and a lot of times they're wearing white, you know? I'm like, man, that's amazing how they keep themselves so spotless. But uh, I don't know. that When I think of, of uh, being clean, you know, reality is this. It's hard to walk in this world without getting dirt on you, right? And we do get dirt on us. Our, our feet get dusty. Our, our, our lives get dusty. The thing is, though, we can't love this world because it will spot us. 2 Peter 3.14 says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look so, uh, for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him without spot and blameless. So Jesus, of course, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was a lamb without spot. He was without blemish. So the world, they do. It, it, wants, to take an, it wants to blemish you. It wants to leave you messed up. I saw this guy uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in an MMA fight not long ago on uh, Bellator. He was a young guy, handsome guy from California. Tough guy, tough young guy. And he was uh, he's a handsome guy. This is why I remember it is because he got his nose busted big time. So by the end of the fight, his nose is just completely, uh, it was knocked out. Just knocked him out cold, flattened his nose, and he was no longer a handsome young guy from California. <laughs> you know what? He left that thing with a blemish, and uh, it was obvious. He's, I, don't, I was wondering, I'm like, Will that, ever, will that ever come back? I don't know if they have to do surgery or what, but I mean, literally just flattened his face. I was like, man, um, dude, you came out of that thing blemished. And so you don't want to, you know what, you, wanna, you don't want to get ca- caught up in this world because it'll blemish you. It, it'll change you. It'll leave you. You know what it's like being in this world, right? Uh, it, it'll leave you some scars. So loving the world causes us to conform to the image uh, that the world has for us instead of Christ's image. In Romans chapter 12, which many of you know this verse, Paul is, is strongly encouraging us. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Why? Why do you need to give God your body? Well, because, if not, verse 2 tells us, and be not conformed to this world. That's that world system. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See how much of this is dealing with the mind. The mind. The mind. It's what you think about. It's what you dwell upon. It's where you put your mind. That's why these things are dangerous. Because they get to your mind. And they're with you all the time. And they're not just feeding you people's phone numbers anymore, right? It's not just so you can call someone. It's giving you all kinds of whatever. Data through your eye gate. uh, And your ear gate. So that you can be distracted from what God would have for you. That's why I've always said this one, I have it covered up. They're on the Apple phone, they got an apple, like, you know, because they, they don't really know what was in the garden, but they think it's an apple. There's a reason for that, because uh, the tree of knowledge is what, is what that implies. So, and that apple has a bite out of it, by the way. Um, and so, be careful. The little ears what you hear, right? The little eyes what you see, because the world has a plan to conform you. But Paul says, hey, wait. You know what you can do? You can, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So ultimately, loving the world culminates in the world system fulfilling a plan to condemn us. Hey, the world's playing for keeps. It's not kidding. It's not goofing around. 1 Corinthians 11.32, uh, Paul says here, But when ye are judged, 
<clears throat> but when we are, sorry, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world, right? The world is not going to be just with you, right? The, the Lord will. The Lord is just. Uh, we, we are judged before the Lord. The world, you know what the world wants to do? They want to, just like they did to Jesus, they want to condemn us. Yeah, but I didn't do anything wrong. Well, that doesn't matter. What you, you've done everything right. That's why the world wants to condemn you. You remember in the garden? What did Abel do wrong? That wasn't Abel. That's right. Abel didn't do, any, Abel didn't do anything wrong, did he? And he got it in the neck. Right? Why? Because he was doing what God told him to do. And it's a type. And so uh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Why? Did he do anything wrong? No. No, he died in our sins. So you know what? We need to make sure that we understand that this world system, it, it, it doesn't really love us. But we need to love the world in the sense of John 3.16 because God loves the world. And we were in the world. We were part of the world. We covered that all last week. So if you want to get in on that, you can go back and look at Ephesians 2 and all that, that we talked about last time. But for the sake of this study, just understand, I'm warning you about the world and some of the things the world wants to do. It wants to ultimately condemn you. And this, I'm kind of progressing, right? Because it starts with friendships, and it starts, you know, it seems kind of casual. But before it's over, man, it's, they're going to condemn you. I can remember one time I, I made a mistake at work. I, I, uh, I uh, bought this piece of equipment, and uh, it, was for, it was a big plotter. I bought it from Holtz. And, it, and I was a kid. Oh, I was a kid. I was in my 20s, but now I think I was a kid. And so they, at, I buy this plotter, and, and uh, I forget the guy's name at Hotes, but he gives me these tickets to, the, to the, the Chiefs game. And I'm like, cool. And we go to the VIP tent and all that. I'm like, oh, great. I didn't think anything of it. I get to the office, and somehow one of my, quote, friends has already found out about this. I haven't even told anybody. And, uh, <clears throat> and he finds out that we got this copier coming, this plotter, and uh, I've got tickets to the game. And it insinuates what? that I got bought off by some tickets to the game. I'm like, wow, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? And so that was a good lesson for me. So after that, I was like, I'm not going to get caught in that trap again. And God knows my heart. I was completely, yeah, I didn't even think about it at the time, what, all that was, could be implied. But my point is this. I thought that guy was my friend. And in a worldly sense, he was my friend. But I learned, you know what, this world is not my friend. And I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So you got to be careful, right? That's why we walk circumspectly, right? we got to be wise and keep our head on a spiritual swivel so we don't step in snares and traps and all of those things because the world is not your friend. It's not your friend. All right, so let's get to point B. Consider the examples of choosing to love the world. Now, this is where I want you to really dig in as we conclude this morning. And yeah, I'm already working toward conclusion. So get to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. And we need to really look at some, we can put some wheels on this wagon and you can take it out of here and use this hopefully the rest of your life. Genesis chapter 13. What is in the Bible when you come across the number 13, what's it often related to? Rebellion, right? Rebellion. Uh, even in the world, people know that. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that 13 is associated with rebellion. They got movies about Friday the 13th and all that stuff. Well, in Genesis chapter 13, we have a gentleman show up that you've heard of. His name is Lot. So we need to consider the example of choosing to love the world. Lot, uh, point one, is the poster child for loving the world. I mean, this guy is exactly... We don't, I don't have to preach because he's already done it for me. Let's just look at his life this morning. 
Now, what's interesting about Lot and how this really lines up well with what I've already covered in my first point about the, the doctrine of salvation is that Lot, it says in 2 Peter 2, 7, is called just. He's just Lot. He's vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, but he is justified. He is so much a type of a Christian because we uh, can be like Lot. God forbid that we could be like Lot if we allow ourselves to be. And so he is justified, uh, but he typifies a carnal Christian. He's like a Christian in this world. It's like, oh, yeah, and they were sincere, and they trusted Christ as their Savior. The day they got saved, they meant it with all their heart, man. They're on their knees. They're asking Christ into their heart. They're not playing games with God. God's quickened them, and he's blessed them. But yet, the world draws them away. And even though they're just, right, they're justified, they don't walk like Christ. They don't go the way of Christ. They go their own way. And they reap that condemnation that I've already talked about. So, point two, Lot never quit riding on Abraham's spiritual coattails. He never, he never matured to stand on his own. Look at verse one. It says, And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. Now, I'll remind you that, that Abraham was called out to Ur Chaldee, not Lot, but, but without getting into all of that, uh, he follows Abraham. And it says in verse 2, And Abraham was very rich in cattle, silver, and in gold, and, and he went on his journeys from the south to Bethel, uh, and, and is under the place where his tent had been at the beginning, and between Bethel and Ai, under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on, on the name of the Lord. And Lot also, which went with Abraham, or Abram, he's Abraham at this point, had flocks and herds and tents. So he's got stuff too. He's hanging out with Uncle Abraham, a good guy to follow. And he's a man walking by faith. He's following in his footsteps. There's no problem with that. He's also blessed with things, and he's following wherever he goes. And it says that in verse 6, And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great. So they could not dwell together. Now, they, they, they hung out together long enough that, man, even Lot was being blessed. He was following Abraham, and, and they got so much stuff that they were blessed. So Lot, uh, Lot never really quit riding on Abraham's spiritual coattails. He never matured to stand alone in Christ, though he had enough stuff where he needed to depart. Lot called Abram out of Ur the Chaldee, not Lot, and it was not a bad thing for Lot to follow him. But the problem is that it becomes evident as we work through Genesis that Lot, though he was just, was not following God. He was ultimately just following either Abraham or his own wisdom, right? His own wisdom. He wasn't seeking God for direction. And so a loving world draws us into relationships that are designed to sabotage our walk with God. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because I've already said that once. I'm repeating myself. So you can see how this applies. The call of the world was stronger than the call of God in Lot's life. So in Genesis 13, Abraham and Lot's uh, substance grows to the place that the land cannot sustain both their herds. And that's what we just read in verse 6. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram uh, Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land. And so it's at this time that Abraham gives Lot a choice of where to feed his flocks. Verse 8, And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for, for we uh, be brethren, right? I love you, bro. 
you're my nephew, I love you, I love you too, Uncle Abraham, or Abram. So this is not the whole, he's like, hey, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right, and if thou depart to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Now, this is a pretty incredible uh, gesture by Abram. He's the elder, he's the man that's being called out, but he says to, to Lot, he's like, you know what, Lot, whatever you want to do, just, just you choose what you want, and if you go to the right, I'll go to the left, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right, I'll just take whatever. Uh, you just choose what you want. And so it's at this time that Abram uh, gives Lot the choice of where to feed his flock. And Lot is not recorded asking the Lord which way to, that he needs to go. He simply lifts up his eyes and looks on the fertile fields of Jordan and takes that course because, well, looks good to him. In verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the, the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, as, the, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Wow. So you see here uh, what we saw in First John, right? We've seen it in Genesis chapter 3, is his eyes. He looks with his eyes. He lifts up his eyes, and he looks, and he's like, ah, this is really pleasing to my eyes. This is super fertile. Uh, let's go on down here, and I'm going to get all of this. I want to go down to the plain of Jordan. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25 says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So Lot falls prey to the lust of the eyes, and it led him into the plain of Jordan near Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice, Lot didn't move into Sodom and Gomorrah the first day. He moved to the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't just like, oh, you know what? Honey, let's sell the cattle, let's sell the ranch, let's just go move into Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he just moves near Sodom and Gomorrah, into that fertile plain. And, and so, you know what it's like. He just, he's just walking by. He's just walking by, like Psalm chapter 1. And it's interesting that the scripture, in the scripture that we see the Spirit moves typically from east to west. And in this case, Lot travels from west to east, a picture that shows that he's going against God. Now, in Genesis 13, 11, it says, Then Lot chose him all, not some, all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Now, this is a problem. He didn't maintain his relationship with Abraham, uh, and he goes, and his fellowship is also affected. Now, it's very clear that he and Abraham had a good relationship. But this decision for him to travel into the plain of Jordan ended up affecting his relationship with his uncle Abraham. It was never as close as it was before. And so <clears throat> it's an interesting thing to see there. And the Holy Ghost records that Lot moved into the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. In verse 12 and 13, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. So what was he looking at? He was looking at this big city, the city of Sodom. But the men of Sodom, the Bible says in verse 13 of chapter 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. They were directly offensive to God. And, again, and you, don't have to, you don't have to imagine what that's like. We live in a culture that's becoming increasingly like Sodom. That is an affront. Everything that is natural, everything that is of God is now 
is no longer acceptable, from gender to sexual behavior to all kinds of things. Don't, don't pitch your tent that direction. Notice Lot is not content to be a shepherd of the field as Abram was. Uh, we see here that he is allowing all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, right, the pride of life, to influence him and draw him into fellowship with wicked men and sinners. Right? He, he's gone from just going by and listening to, you know, he's standing around with them. He's moved into their city. Now, don't get me wrong. We're here to win people to Christ, and you got to go where they go. Paul went to key cities, key men, so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when our motives are not meditating on the Word of God day and night, are not about what God's will is, but they're about our will. We see a self-willed man here. It's a picture of a Christian who is self-willed, a man who's just but is not following the Lord obediently and doing what he wants to do instead of what God wants him to do. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this to his son in the Lord Timothy. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to have great gain, be godly and be content with that. Don't, don't go after what the world has. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we carry nothing out. That's another way of saying, look toward the end, because you leave this place the same way you came, with nothing. So be very careful what you think is valuable and what you invest in, because at the end of the day, you go out the way you came in. And that's why Christians, and it's so true, we often say the only two things that are eternal are what? The word of God and the souls of men. This building's going to go. The 20 acres is going to go. But you guys are eternal. The investment at HBF is the souls of men and women. That's what's eternal. The word of God into the, in the hearts of people. That's eternal. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us uh, be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and snare into, into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, that's not a saying that it is a sin to be rich. God does trust people who can be trusted with riches, uh, oftentimes. But, but there is definitely, uh, uh, there is a temptation that comes with having more than you know what to do with. Verse 10, for the love of money, not having money, but the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When Lot looked on that field, he saw, those fertile, he saw those fertile plains. He saw what that could mean to him. He saw what that could mean to his herds. He saw what that could mean to his bank account. And he kept moving that way. It's worth noting that God waits until Lot has been removed from Abraham's life to expand his promises of blessing to him and his seed after him. As soon as he's gone, God says, hey, Abraham, let me talk to you about what I got for you. And he starts to share, and I'm not going to get into that this morning for time's sake, but if you pick up the, the text and read it later in Genesis uh, 13, 18, Abraham's dwelling in the plains of, of Mamre, which means strength of fatness, in Hebron, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, where he builds an altar, and he is worshiping God. He's worshiping God while Lot's worshiping the things of this earth. As Lot is drawn away from God by loving the world, Abraham is drawn into God's promises, and he's worshiping the Lord. And by the way, as far as material wealth, that didn't affect Abraham at all. He was still doing fine. Point four, loving the world and the things that are in the world are designed to defile us. 
Remember we talked about keeping those garments spotless. Lot moved from the promised land and the plain of Sodom. Now he moves to the plain of Sodom <clears throat> to the city of Sodom. In doing so, he is taken captive by the affairs of the world. Now for time's sake, I'm not going to read it, but if you go to the next chapter in chapter 14, it says in verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of <clears throat> uh, uh, Amraphel, king of uh, Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, and, and Chedlamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, <clears throat> and uh, Shinab, king of Adam, and, Sh- and uh, Shamber, king of Zeboam, and the, <clears throat> and the king Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. So these guys come to, to war with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and to just cut to the chase, it ends up that, that Lot gets taken captive with this world, uh, with these guys in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 14, if you go down to verse 11, it says, And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, who cares, and all their victuals, and, and, and they went their way. They took everything. They wiped the city out. But verse 12 tells us what's important. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So these guys, they get in a, into a, a regional, if not a global war at that time. That's like a world war. It's a pretty big deal. They come down from, from uh, the north, and they sweep in, and they take this city, very wealthy cities, city-states at that time. And, and, and part of all of this is, is Lot is now very clearly in verse 12. He's no longer dwelling with his tent door looking towards Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom, and he gets swept up in this invasion. <clears throat> Lot was completely taken captive by the world. Notice he exchanged his livestock for the goods of Sodom. He's no longer dwelling in a tent. We know later he's dwelling in a house. Uh, he no longer is tending the sheep. You remember when Peter tried that? God had called him. He said, first you're going to be a fisher of men. Then he's like, he's like, hey, you know what? You need to follow me, Peter. And Peter one day says, you know what? I've messed this up so bad. I'm just going to go back to fishing. I already preached on it a few weeks ago, right? What happened when Peter tried to go back to fishing? It didn't work. He couldn't go back to the world. He only had one way to go, and that was to be a shepherd. God, Jesus said, Peter, you're not, you're not going to be a fisher anymore. You're going to be a shepherd. You're going to be like me. I'm a shepherd. You're going to be like me. You know what was happening? Lot was no longer identifying with who he really was. He's a shepherd. You know what? Christians oftentimes, they don't really want to identify with who they really are. The closer they get to the world, the further they want to get from ministry. The further they want to get, you try to, even, even in the church, you try to get people to take care of the lambs. I don't want to shepherd the lambs. I'm not a shepherd. No, you are a shepherd. That's why God put the need there. But you know what? Where you invest is so important. It's so important. But we got to invest in other things other than the word of God and the souls of men. We're too important for that. Lot now has moved into the, the city of Sodom. But what he didn't realize <clears throat> is he's getting swept up with it. And all of his goods are gone. And without getting into the details, what happens is Abraham delivers him. Uncle Abraham comes to the rescue. But the contrast of 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 12 is apparent once again. In that passage that we just read, it says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I bet, I bet when Lot was taken captive and all his goods, he's like, Oh, what a mistake I've made. But contrast that with, with Abraham. Abraham ended up taking 300 trained servants, 
300 train servants of his house going down there and delivering, uh, defeating an army, which is amazing, with 300 train servants, chasing them all the way up near the Mediterranean, recovering everything, including Lot and his goods. And man, they can't, they, I mean, everybody's like, man, you're awesome, Abraham. We want to, we want to bless you. You know what Pete, what, uh, uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 11, he says, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. You want to be a man of God? You want to be a man of God in the New Testament? That's what Paul says. You know what? Flee all those things. That's what Joseph did. He fled all those things, but it isn't just running away. He also says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Get in a good fight. Not a fight that's not worth winning, a fight that's worth getting into. Lay hold on eternal life, whereinto thou art also called and profess a good profession before many witnesses. Be a man of God. Be a man of integrity. Take a stand for Jesus and don't be ashamed. And that's what it's all about. That's what this world needs so desperately is people who will stand for Christ. So Lot was taken by the world and Abraham fought the good fight of faith and he restored his nephew and the stuff that he had and and he did it with 300 trained men. So while Lot was investing in the businesses of Sodom, Abraham was investing in 300 trained men who could defeat the strongest armies of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24 says this, And the servant of the Lord must not strive. It wasn't because Abraham was a brawler, but gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness. Meekness is strength under control. Instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Beloved, that's what men of God do. That's what women of God do. We invest in the word of God. We make disciples. Why? Because we want to recover people's souls from the snare of the devil. That's what godly people should be doing today. That's what we need to be focused on. The reason Abraham was successful in recovering Lot was not because he was a great warrior, though he obviously was one of the greatest unknown warriors that existed on the planet at that time. I mean, how did that happen? I don't even know. There's nothing said about it. That's not even what God's talking about. God's not even worried about his ability to take an army and put them on to flight. He just kind of mentions it like a side note. Why? Because he's got a promised seed, and he's working with faithful men, and he's doing what he's supposed to be doing as a shepherd. That's what he's doing. He's taking care of his house. How many men are there right now? Let me, let me ask. How many men are there right now in our society that are not taking care of their house? Too many. You know what? It's our fault. Let's win them to Christ. Get them saved so that they can be the man they need to be. You can't be that kind of man that takes care of your house if you don't have Christ in your house. You see what I'm saying? The problem isn't, oh, men are lost and they act like dogs. Men are lost, women are lost, and they act like dogs. Lost people act like dogs until they meet Jesus Christ. So our job is to train people in the word of God so that we can go forth with wisdom and recover people from the snare of the devil so that they no longer are dogs, but they're transformed, transformed from the inside out and their minds are fixed on things above so that their life will be changed. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But once again, we see Abraham is blessed at the end of Genesis 14 by this priest called Melchizedek. And I don't have time to read all of it, but before it's all said and done, every, every turn, as Lot is going further and further and further away from God, Abraham is being blessed, and he's being blessed, and he's being blessed. And yet he still doesn't have the promised seed that God has told him about. 
fifth point. Loving the world causes Lot to conform to the image of the world that the, and to the image the world had for him. Loving the world causes Lot to conform to the images the world had for him. Jesus shows up in the plain of Mamre in Genesis 18, 20 through 21 to inform Abraham that he is looking into the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah because the cries of contrite hearts are being heard by him. And so it says, Genesis 18, 20, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. Now he doesn't say to Abraham, I'm going to go and wipe out Gomorrah. I'm going to wipe out Sodom. He doesn't say that. He just says, I'm hearing cries. People are crying out with broken and contrite hearts, and I'm hearing it. I'm going to go check this out. But you know what? Abraham is so tuned into who God is and what God's all about that as soon as he hears God say, I'm checking into this wickedness, he's, he's worried. He knows that God's judgment is about to fall. He knows that God is not going to put up with this forever. And he goes to praying. He starts negotiating with God. He's like, God, if there's 50 people down there, don't, don't, don't destroy them. And, and then he, and he gets down to, well, hey, God, if there's 40 people, if there's 30 people, and he finally gets down, and God's like going, okay, I, I'm God, and I'm patient, but you're wearing me out here, Abraham. And he gets down to 10 people. And you and I both know, what is he, what's he thinking about? Lot. He's worried about Lot. He's worried about his nephew. He's worried about his family. He's like, surely Lot, he's just. He's got the promises of God. He, he knows who Jehovah is. He knows there's one true God. Surely he's got his family in order. I know he's in that wicked world, but surely he's got his family in order. And God, just don't, just spare them. And you guys know how the story goes. In Genesis 18, 22 through 33, Abraham negotiates through this prayer. And when the angel shows up to Sodom to find Lot completely compromised by the world, he's seated in a position in the gate of the most wicked city on the planet. Genesis 19, if you got your Bible, look over there. Genesis 19, 1. When the angels finally show up, this is what happens. And there came two angels. And by the way, once again, God's blessing Abraham. <laughs> and he leaves Abraham, and he comes to chapter 19 and verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, so at sunset. And Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. Now we see that he's sitting. He's not walking, he's not standing, he's sitting. He's sitting in the gate of a wicked city. The thing that he's residing over, meaning that he's in a place of leadership, he's in a place of respect in this wicked city, and in that wicked city are cries going up to God Almighty, saying, what in the, it's getting a hold of God's attention, going, what is going on? I'm going to go check this out. He's in a place where he's in charge. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. You know, no one else really knew who they were. These angels obviously look like men, because in the Bible, angels look like men. But Lot understood who they were. He knew who he was dealing with. And he was sitting in the place of the scornful. Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. How did he get there? Well, you know, casting crowns would say this. It was a slow fade. You know, the lyrics to the chorus of that song, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. 
It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price is paid when you give yourself away. People never, never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Point six, loving the world ultimately led to Lot's family's condemnation. When you get to chapter 19, verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whosoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because of the cry of them as waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. You know what happened to Lot? It's not that he didn't believe the word of God. He actually believes God's word. The problem is nobody believed him. His life spoke so loud, nobody was listening. His sons-in-law laugh at him. Judgment's coming, whatever. They've been saying that for 2,000 years. I mean, you've heard that one. Judgment's coming. Oh, yeah? That's what they're saying to his own. These are the people he married his daughters to. Why didn't he check that out before he let his daughter marry him? Because it wasn't on his agenda. And when the morning arose, and the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Time doesn't allow me to do this passage justice, but you know Lot lost his wife and barely escaped with his two daughters. They were so attached to this world and so ignorant of the wrath to come that the angels literally, Genesis 19, 16, took both Lot and his wife. They had to grab him by the hand and pull him out because they were so attached to the world. They were so attached to the world system. They, they, they had to pull him out of there before the judgment fell. It was tragic. And it's exactly what the world system wants to happen to you and to me. Everybody's like, oh, the devil did this. The devil doesn't, doesn't have to do a lot because we're so attached to the world. You're not a danger to the devil if you're attached to this world. You're right where he wants you. Of course, the conclusion is that the condemnation comes to the world, which is why God encourages us not to, to love the world system that we talked about last week. The reason Lot was saved was because his uncle Abraham was praying for him and knew God would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all its inhabitants. You see, the reason Jesus came to Abraham, I believe, is because he knew Abraham would intercede in prayer. He gave Abraham the way. He didn't have to explain the situation to Abraham. All he had to do is say, I'm going to Sodom to check out what I'm hearing. And immediately Abraham's in prayer, in intercessory prayer. Two angels show up to, to Lot, and he still can't get out of the place. Man, once you get entangled with this world, man, it is hard to get decoupled. It takes an act of God. Point seven. In this scenario, let me ask you, are you Abraham or are you Lot? Are you Abraham or are you Lot? Abraham was content to walk with the Lord and allow God to bless him with promises that he had not yet received. He didn't even have Isaac yet. And still he keeps more promises on top of more promises. Okay, you don't have your son yet, but let me just tell you, Abraham, you're going to, once Lot leaves, you're going to have all of this land. Okay, Abraham, I know, I, know you don't, I know you don't have your son yet, but this, hey, I'm your great and exceeding reward. 
I mean, he just keeps coming to, hey, just keep hanging in there, Abraham. Keep hanging in there. The promise is coming, Abram. It's coming. It's coming. And he walks by faith. Lot had all that the world offered, making friendship with the world, becoming spotted with the world, being conformed to the world, and ultimately being condemned as he loses his family to the world system. Without being told, Abraham knew the judgment was coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was so blind to what was going on that judgment took he and his family off guard. But Lot was saved. But so is by fire. Like 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 says. And I'm almost done, so just hang with me. This is a serious message that the church needs to hear. Beloved, some of you, and I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't have anyone in mind. I'm, and I may not be talking to anyone in this room. Maybe someone out here on the internet. But there's some of us. I put myself in there. That you will really not get it until you're out of this body and you're at the judgment seat of Christ, and you see the damage it costs your family. When one of your children, your grandchildren, are in the depths of hell. Now, I'm not saying it's all your fault, because everyone has their own choices to make. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying when you realize that your decisions help that happen. And so today is a day of repentance. If you're still breathing and got air in your lungs, man, let the Spirit of God quicken you. I mean, I'm I'm passionate about this because I'm convicted about this. I'm reading this stuff. This isn't like, oh, Brian, this is some message. This is, I'm, I'm going through this myself going, man, I'm feeling pretty entangled with the world. Well, get me decoupled because I'm no good to y'all if I'm caught up in the world system. And you're no good to the Lord if you're caught up in the world system. We've got, guys, we need to be intentional about this stuff. So I'm going to give you some practical things to be victorious. Point C. Don't you, how many want to be victorious? I do. I want to be like Abraham, man. I want to be a faithful man right that's who i want to be i want to be like abram i don't want to be like lot so here we can combat the world's desire to determine our destination that's what we're doing the world has a course set for us it's already laid out it's like a path and you got to say wait a minute i am not going to go down that path i know when i got saved i made that decision 30 years ago i'm not going down that path again i'm not going to do it you got to make a decision and you got to stick to it I don't think anyone here this morning wants to end up like Lot. As we conclude, let me allow you to give some things to help you out here. You know, before we got into this passage in verses 15 through 17, the Holy Spirit through John pointed out three groups of people, and we've already covered them. The first one was little children. The second one was young men. And the third one was fathers. You know what we need to be about? If you want to combat the desire to go the way of the world, you, need to, you and I, all of us, need to be about the business of growing people in the faith. There's a reason the mission of the church is to make disciples. Yes, Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, right? He, he meant make disciples of all nations, all peoples. And yes, it has to do with world missions and it has to do with church planning. And it has to do with discipleship. It has to do with us taking the word of God and investing it in the people right before us. Now, knowing that, Abraham invested the word in Lot. I'm sure that the promises that Abraham had, Lot was privy to him. Lot did what Lot wanted to do. You know what? You can't make anyone do what they don't want to do. But you know what? You can make a decision. I'm, gonna, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna just going to let it go. I'm going to invest the word of God in the people that will listen. How many of you want to do that? Because if you want to do that, you are in the right church. 
We are structured for that. We're set up from that, from D1, D2, HBI, but even in the ministries that we're all doing, this is about that. At the core of everything we're doing, it is about making disciples. Whether we're going out and preaching the gospel somewhere, whether we're doing discipleship, whether we're taking mission trips, whether we're mowing the lawn, for goodness sakes. That's what it's all about. Whether we're teaching the children's ministry. Don't be like Lot your whole life. Develop your own fellowship with God, little children. You see, Lot never got to the point where he was saying, God, what do you want for me? He was living vicariously through someone else's faith. And you know what? When you're a baby Christian, when you're a little child, that is how it works. When you're a child, you do what your parents tell you. You go where they tell you to go. But there comes a day where you've got to separate. There comes a day where decisions come. It's called an evil day in Ephesians 6. And you better be ready to follow God. Because if you're not, the world's got a course for you. And it will take you where you don't want to go. And it will leave you blotted and blemished. And we're not just going to say grace unto it. There's consequences for going down the wrong road. Grow up, little children. Take advantage of the opportunity to learn of him. You know, John said, you've known him that's from the beginning. The creator of all. But it's not enough just to know him. Lot knew him, but Lot didn't obey him. And it, man, that had to break, it broke Abraham's heart. Father Abraham. So little children, I want to implore you to grow up. Don't be a baby Christian. Man, you're in a church, we'll teach you the Bible. Grow up, grow up. That's the first thing you got to do is grow up and start having your own relationship with Christ. And so when tough decisions come, you go to God. And he's your father. Second, stand up. You know what young men do? They stand up. And they overcome the wicked one. They learn to stand for Christ, having the whole armor of God. And they're prepared in the battle. Their mind and their soul to stand in the evil day. Would to God I could, I'd love to see our HBI just full of young men and women. I mean, I'm talking 25, 26, 23, 22, 30-year-olds. We got some of those, praise God, thank you, Jesus. But we need young men and women that are willing to stand up. They're willing to get equipped. They're going to make Jesus their priority. And willing to say, you know what, that's all I need is to follow God so that you can go out like Abraham with his 300 men and put the nations to flight. Prepare your heart and mind and your soul to stand in the evil day. And having done all the stand, stand there for. So grow up, stand up, and lastly, fathers. What is it that we need to be doing if we are indeed a father? Well, it's not going to the lake, though you can go to the lake, but I'm just saying we got to pray up so you can raise up the next generation. One of the hardest things in my life right now to do is to get time to do the way I want to do it, the way I know it needs to be done. i got Bobby saying yes because she knows where I'm going with this, is to pray up. Isn't it hard, Bobby? To pray like we need to be praying. I'm not talking about doing a bunch of stuff. We need to do a bunch of stuff, but we need to be praying it up for the next generations. Abraham was training faithful servants. You know that? Why Lot was doing what he wanted to do? Where could you find Abraham? Training faithful servants. Influencing his own house. 
One, uh, one was able to deliver, a guy like Abram was able to deliver entire nations and others and his own family. So if we count ourselves to be mature, we need to be serious about prayer. How many prayer teams does our church have now? We've got quite a few. I mean, James Horton is looking for help. We need help to pray for Romania. Uh, how many prayer teams don't have a lot of attendance? Man, find a prayer team leader. If you're a prayer team leader, raise your hand. Okay, raise your hand. All right, so we got prayer team leaders in here. Find one of these people. You got to be a member? No. You got to be discipled? No. All you got to do is be willing to meet and pray. We need people praying, praying for our missionaries, praying for our families. If we count ourselves to be mature, we need to be praying. There are times when the best and only thing we can do, when God is checking into things and bringing judgment, is pray. You notice Abraham didn't run down to Sodom? Oh, oh Lord, wait, let me run down and and pull. I'm going to run down and pull Lot out. Let me go talk to Lot. You know what? Abraham knew it was already over. This was in God's hands. Beloved, we need to be praying. If you're looking around this culture, there's some things that are already over. What we need to be doing is praying that God delivers some souls while the soul delivering business is still good because one day you're not going to be able to be delivered like it is today by grace. So in conclusion, how will you arrive at your destination? You know, some were destroyed in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, forever identified with the Dead Sea. Others were so attached to the world that they never escaped its clutches and will always be identified with looking back instead of looking forward. And yet others were like Lot and his daughters. They were saved, so yet as by fire. Can you say that's you? Are you one of those? Or perhaps you're like Abraham. Maybe you have, you're godly and you're content, and that for you is great gain. Are you satisfied with what God has given, making disciples of faithful servants? Are you delivering those who God has given you opportunity to deliver? John has written a very clear and simple passage in verses 15 through 17. It's up to us right now to determine what we love and who we love. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time.